going to consider a welcoming spirit, uh, which goes along with God's love, God's grace, the amazing things he does for us. I tried to think of how to start this sermon, and just this morning, I decided to start by telling you two stories, one of a welcoming spirit and one of a not-so-welcoming spirit. I'm going to reverse them, the unwelcoming spirit and then the welcoming spirit. A few years ago, I was a chaplain at the City Rescue Mission, and one of the young girls and one of the young men on staff there, both graduates of Southern Nazarene University, decided to get married after having dated for several years, and they invited the entire church where Heather had grown up to come to the wedding, and then all of the staff from the City Rescue Mission and all of their friends from the uh, university. <clears throat> it happened to be a large Nazarene church. I won't tell you which one because I don't want to talk badly about a church, but it was a Nazarene church, the only bad experience I've had in the Nazarene church. After the wedding, which was quite impressive, uh, Heather was a little spoiled by her father, and uh, I don't know, I used to kid him that he spent two years' wages just on the flowers for the wedding. I don't think he did. I think it was three years, but I just joked with two. But at any rate, it was a beautiful wedding and great ceremony, and we were both impressed by the pastor and the challenge that he gave to the young couple. And then we went back to the fellowship hall for the reception. Now, the fellowship hall, at least... They may have more than one because it's a big building, but the one they used was, I don't know, pentagon or octagon or hexagon shaped with, you know, lots of little walls around it. And there was a table in each section with a punch on one table, cake on another, sandwiches on another, and they were separated because they were around the walls. Well, we got some food and we went and sat down and there was a group of ladies behind us and one of them said, who are all these strangers in our church building? It makes you really nervous to have so many strangers here. Another one said, yeah, you never know what they're going to do. And one of them said, I don't know what Heather was thinking of, inviting all these people. And look at them. Well, look, look, some of the girls are wearing slacks. Don't they know you don't wear slacks to church? Well, worse than that, the men are wearing T-shirts and jeans. You shouldn't go to church without a tie-on. Well, you can tell they're not Nazarenes. Well, I wonder if they're even Christians. And Pam and I said, my goodness, if I was looking for a church, this is not the one I'd come to. A welcoming spirit is not one that judges people by their appearance. And as a matter of fact, I would guess most of those young girls and young guys were Nazarenes because they were their friends from Southern Nazarene University. At any rate, that was a bad example of, of a, oh, I think it was a good example of a bad welcoming spirit. And I don't think that would ever happen here. Now, I don't know them real well, but I can't imagine Jane and Grace and Joanne sitting at a table criticizing people for the way they look. I just, I can't picture them doing that. Now, if I'm wrong, don't tell me. I'd rather keep the good image I have of them. But I, I don't think that would happen. But a welcoming spirit is one that welcomes people as they are. The good example, when I was in seventh grade, my parents were in the Salvation Army in Grand Haven, Michigan. The building was the old movie house. In the basement, we had a clothing store to give used clothing to people. 
in the back half. The front half was an emergency shelter for men traveling through town. Back in those days, a lot of I don't know, hobos, tramps, transients, whatever name you chose, traveled through town and they'd come and spend the night there. On the first floor was the sanctuary, and second floor is where we lived, and the third floor was a gymnasium. Well, one time a young man, probably in his early 20s, came to stay in the shelter, and he found some kind of work in town, so he stayed for a few days. Each time any of the men left, my dad would go down to make sure there wasn't any alcohol laying around in that welcome center, or that sleeping center, and if there was, he'd get rid of it. Well, Peter went out to work one morning, and my dad went down to the basement and found a bottle of whiskey under Peter's pillow. He did what he always did. He poured it down the sink and put the empty bottle on the pillow to make sure the person knew he'd been caught. Well, it was a Wednesday, and during the Wednesday night service, this young man came in, and you had to walk through the sanctuary to get down the basement. He came in very quietly and went down the steps, and all of a sudden, we heard this stomping up the steps. The door slammed open. The door slammed shut. Carrying his empty bottle, he walked up to the front and he said, I want to know which one of you dirty Christians drank my whiskey. <laughs> well, kind of, well, the teenagers did what kids would always do. We all laughed. And in the audience, we heard, <sighs> but one man, kind of the James of that church, the, the patriarch, <laughs> got up and walked up and put his arm around this young man and walked him down the aisle and went down the basement with him. None of us knew what transpired down there, but Sunday morning that young man came in and during the testimony time he stood up and said, I want to apologize for my behavior Wednesday night, but I'm kind of glad I did it because Mr. Botbile here took me downstairs and prayed with me and I accepted Jesus. <clears throat> That's a welcoming spirit. And the young man went back to his family, and I didn't hear from him, but I think my dad and mom heard from him every Christmas for several years. The difference between a non-welcoming spirit and a welcoming spirit. I hope we all have a welcoming spirit. I met a strange man this last week. Well, I don't know that he was strange. His thinking was strange. He'd kind of had a, a conglomeration of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and something else all mixed up. And he was telling me this, well, I had the fortune of picking him up in northern side of Edmund and taking him to the southern side of Moor. So I got to listen to him expound on his doctrine of Jesus, an alien sent by one of the Hindu gods to be the good influence on people and and the other Hindu gods had sent Mohammed and, and you know, other leaders and, and how all of us are either following one alien or another alien. But it does, well, at any rate, I listened to him. I wanted to stop and say, oh, get out, you're driving me crazy. But I listened to him. And when he got out, he said, well, at least I met one Christian who will listen to me. Yeah, well, maybe we need to learn to listen. Well, our story today is one of a welcoming spirit and a not-so-welcoming spirit. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees 
invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Wasn't that nice? Most of the Pharisees weren't that nice to Jesus. But he said, Master, I'd like you to come to my house. I'd like to have dinner with you. Evidently, he was a good Pharisee, one that cared about spiritual things, one that wanted to know more about Jesus. And if you believe that, will you please see me after service because I have some lovely ocean property out in Gaiman I'd like to sell you. <laughs> no, this Pharisee was not a good guy who was trying to be welcoming. And so, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. Now, that could be a little confusing. Jesus knew everything. So why would he go to this Pharisee's house who he knew was going to try to trap him? Did he forget for a moment, or, or was he confused? Or What was wrong with him? He went to the Pharisee's house, and so he reclined at the table. Maybe this was a weak moment in Jesus' thinking. I mean, he not only went to the house, but he reclined at the table like they were old friends. Didn't he know that Christians are not supposed to have fellowship with non-Christians? Haven't you always been told that? Birds of a feather flock together, or you know by the company you keep. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't run around with non-Christians. At the same time, if you only know Christians, how are you going to win someone to Christ who doesn't know him? I've told you before that in the Salvation Army it was a tradition on Friday and Saturday night that somebody would take their religious magazine and go to all the bars and distribute them. I had a little lady in Brainerd, Minnesota named Betty who did that. Only Brainerd only had three bars in the city, so we took the entire county, which is a resort county, with bars around all 60 lakes. So I had to drive her every Friday and Saturday night. Betty loved to talk. Betty never stopped talking. Her kids told me she talked in her sleep. But she took these magazines, it's called The War Cry, and passed it out. At one particular spot, I waited and waited and waited for her to come out, and I finally thought, Maybe she's in trouble. I better go in. So I went in, and Betty was sitting at the bar with a bottle of Coke in her hand. Now, my first thought was, oh, Betty, what a terrible thing you're doing. You're sitting there in the Salvation Army uniform, even with the bonnet that they used to wear. Some of you will remember those. You're sitting there, and it looks like you're drinking. And she said, I made sure they kept it in the bottle so everybody would know it was Coke. I said, okay. And then she said, come over. She said, I was just talking to this young man. He told me that he grew up in a Christian home and he's really gotten lost and he wants to accept Jesus as the Savior tonight. And I'm glad you're here because we can all three pray together. So there in the bar, we held hands and he prayed a prayer of repentance. I didn't have the patience Betty had <laughs> to sit and talk to someone, I'll have to admit. But she took time to talk to this sinner who accepted Jesus. And I think Jesus went to the Pharisee's house because he knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed to repent. 
And how is anyone going to repent? I think the Scripture tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. If they don't hear it, they can't repent. If they don't know they're a sinner, there's nothing to be sorry for. Now, this young man, now he's probably in his 30s. He's young now. At the time, he was probably my age. But uh, I didn't hear from him again until Christmas. And at Christmas time, there was a letter in the mail addressed to the Salvation Army. There was a good-sized check in it, and he said, your lady last summer led me back to the Lord, and since I've stopped drinking, I have a lot more money, (laughs) so I want to contribute it to your Christmas fund. And every Christmas, as long as I was there, that check arrived, and I don't know, I suppose it did many years after. But she took time to be with a sinner. And so, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. How utterly embarrassing for Simon. It says that she entered his house, but the houses in that day were not like ours. Most of them were built in a U-shape, and each room was just a bedroom, and out here was a courtyard, and that was their living room, their dining room, their kitchen, uh, their family room, their men's cave, their rec room, whatever. This courtyard was the house, and there's usually just a long, narrow row in front of it. It's hot there. They didn't have air conditioning, so they left it open so the air could at least move a little bit. So when she came, she went right into the dining room or the courtyard. Now, if you were wealthy, you had a roof over it. If you weren't, then it was not roofed. I imagine his had a roof over it. But she walked right in. She had the nerve to come to his house. I'm sure he thought, what are my guests thinking that this woman walks right in? What if they think I've invited her? I mean, it should have been obvious to this woman that she was not welcome there. These were the holy, righteous Pharisees, and she was a sinful woman. And so, she stood behind Jesus, and then at his feet weeping, then she began to wet his feet with her tears. This woman had no shame. She is indescribably out of line. She shouldn't have been here in the first place. And then she broke all tradition by approaching Jesus. I mean, she shouldn't have come into the courtyard, but she should never have gone over to a table full of men and spoken to one of them or approached one of them. That just wasn't done. And then she makes it even worse. She has absolutely no decorum. She starts to allow her tears to fall on Jesus' feet. She could have at least had the decency to take the sleeve of her dress and wipe the tears away and not let them fall on Jesus' feet. And so she continues by wiping his feet with her hair. She has now violated every social error. She entered a man's home without being invited. 
she went to a men's only dinner. Ladies, if you want to know what that experience is like, come here, what is it, the first Saturday of each month and, and go into the men's breakfast. You'll know what it's like. You, women aren't invited. It's a men's breakfast. Well, this was a men's supper, and no woman was there. So she violated that. Then she approached the man who was supposed to be the guest of honor without being beckoned. In that tradition, a woman didn't approach a man unless he motioned for her to come. And then she got down on her knees in front of him and allowed her tears to fall on his feet. I mean, how much were these upright citizens, these religious leaders, these pillars of society supposed to take from this woman? And then she goes a step further. She wipes his feet with her hair. I mean, this woman has ruined the dinner. This dinner had been carefully planned to embarrass Jesus and to give the Pharisees an opportunity to destroy him. And instead, this woman is embarrassing the Pharisees. She's ruined the whole plan. And what's worse is that Jesus is not telling her to stop. And so she kissed his feet. What? How many here have ever kissed somebody's feet? Never mind, I won't ask you. <laughs> it just doesn't sound like something you want to do. She's already done more than enough to embarrass the Pharisee by coming into his house, approaching the guest, and now she's kissing Jesus' feet. Ah, maybe they should drag her outside and stone her. That would serve her right. That would teach her a lesson. She'd never do that again. And not only that, it would say to everybody else, don't approach Jesus. All the other sinners in the town realize the Pharisees don't like it when we come to Jesus, so I'm not going to do it, or they might stone me to death. And so she pours perfume on his feet. I mean, that's pretty much got to be the last straw. All this expensive perfume. Why doesn't Jesus stop her? The Pharisees are saying to each other and to themselves, what's wrong with this guy? I mean, he tells us he's a prophet and he doesn't know she's a sinner. He seems to know the law because he quotes it quite often. Why is he allowing her to break it? I mean, he, he purports to be a good Jewish man who studied the rules of Judaism, and, and look what he's allowing to happen. And so, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Aha. Uh -huh thought the Pharisee, just as we thought, this man is no prophet. He doesn't know what kind of woman she is. No religious leader would allow a sinner to touch him. Our constant pursuit of taking him down, now I know it's justified. We're doing the right thing. We just have to try harder. He let a sinner touch him. He's no prophet. He claims to be the son of God. He's not the son of God. He, 
Look at what he's allowing to go on. One more story from my past in a welcoming spirit sense. We were at the Salvation Army in Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, totally aside, I know I've told this story before, but some of you I know weren't here because it was Sunday night, so I'd tell it again. When, I was, when we were in Battle Creek, I had the most exciting, thrilling experience of my life. Prior to that, I had met senators and a governor and the prime minister of India and the British ambassador to America. None of that was near as important as the time I was invited to go bowling with Tony the Tiger. And it was great, <laughs> except he cheated. Whenever he threw the ball, they put the bumpers up so he couldn't get a gutter ball. And whenever I bowled, they went down so I could and did get some gutter balls. Kellogg had sponsored a fundraising event for the Salvation Army and Part of it was me bowling with Tony the Tiger. So when you leave this morning, if you shake my hand, know that you are shaking the hand that shook the paw of Tony the Tiger. <laughs> Exciting experience. But at any rate, we realized after being there in Battle Creek for just a short time that there were a lot of homeless men who were discharged from the Veterans Administration Psychiatric Hospital in Battle Creek. And I don't know about now, but then we didn't treat our vets very well. They were sent from all over the country if they had psychiatric problems to the Battle Creek Hospital. And when they were, when they were well enough to leave, a van from the hospital would drive them into Battle Creek and let them out and say, you're on your own. Well, if they had family to send them money for a bus, they could get back home. If not, they stayed there living on the streets. So we started the soup kitchen and we fed, I don't know, 150, 200 people every day. I hired one of the ladies in the church to supervise it and, and coordinate it. Pam and I were at a leadership seminar in Wisconsin. We uh, served on the staff there for 10 days one summer. It's before cell phones and over the PA system came a message for me to go to the phone. There was an emergency call. Well, our kids were home, so I went rather quickly because I didn't know what the emergency was. It was my secretary called and said, Caroline, who was the coordinator of the kitchen, has a problem. I said, okay, what is it? She said, well, here she is. So I, I don't know why this won't stay on my ear. Maybe my ear is big enough to hold it. I don't know. And Caroline took the phone and she said, I'm not letting that thing eat in my soup or come into my soup kitchen and Caroline says I have to. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, that thing is back and it's not coming in my soup kitchen. I said, what thing? She said, that thing. I said, give the phone back to Marilyn. I said, Marilyn, what's the problem? And she said, well, you know, Leonard came in two weeks ago dressed as a woman with the wig and the high heels and Caroline told him he couldn't eat here unless he went home and changed. And he's back today, and she says he can't come in. She said, one of the ministers who helps sponsor the soup kitchen called me and said he was under the impression that anyone who was hungry could eat here. So I said, give the phone back to Caroline. I said, Caroline, we opened the soup kitchen to feed hungry people. 
We're not judging their spirituality or anything else about them. They're hungry. We feed them. She said, well, then I quit. And she did. We didn't see her in church for many months after that. But he ate there. Now, you may disagree with me. I don't know. You may not have let him in either. But I picture Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, not saying to the disciples, go amongst them and see which of them are holy and feed them. Have the 5,000 sit down and check their denominational affiliation. He simply said, take the bread, take the fish, feed them. And, and I felt that was our responsibility. A welcoming spirit to anyone who is hungry can be fed. And I think that needs to be true not only of physical food, but of spiritual food. I think anyone who's hungry for things of God needs to be fed. And they need to be welcomed. I know not so much here, we're kind of in a suburban area, but I know in some of the downtown churches, they probably get some people in that they really wonder, ah, should, should we let them in? But shouldn't we? Jesus welcomed everybody. Well, this woman poured perfume on his feet. And so Jesus said, Simon, that's the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to his house, I have something to tell you. Simon is probably thinking, I don't care what you've got to tell me. I have proof now that you're not a prophet. You're a phony. We're the religious leaders. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. I don't have to listen to you, but go ahead. So Simon says, tell me, teacher. Thinking, doesn't matter what you say. We're going to get rid of you pretty soon. We're giving you enough rope to hang yourself, and pretty soon... We've got you. And so Jesus said, Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I'm guessing this Pharisee thought, well, that's a simple question. A very simple story. Why did the masses follow this man and listen to him? I heard he was a great storyteller. I heard that they really liked to hear him. Why? Well, that's such an easy, simple story. I don't know. What do they see in him? And so Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled and probably sat back and thought, <laughs> He's told a simple story, but I gave a really smart answer. That just proves that I'm smarter than you are. I'm a Pharisee. I know everything. A few months ago, I saw a woman wearing a T-shirt that said, I don't need Google. My husband knows everything. And uh, I think that's probably the way the Pharisee felt. I don't need Google. I know everything. And so, Jesus said, you have judged correctly. The Pharisee probably thought, well, of course I've judged correctly. I'm a Pharisee. 
I've studied the scripture for years. I've, we, we've debated each other over every simple thing in the Torah. I mean, there's no one wiser than us in all of Israel. Of course I gave a good answer. And so Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Maybe it's because I've got a weird sense of humor, but lots of times I see humor in Jesus' words. And this is one of the times. Do you see this woman? Of course he saw that woman. She had entered the courtyard. She had gone to the table. She had wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. She kissed his feet. Of course he saw this woman. There was not a man in that court, courtyard that had taken his eyes off that woman since she entered the courtyard. They saw her. Some saw her because they were so shocked that a woman had the audacity to enter the courtyard. Others perhaps saw her just because they wondered, what is this crazy person going to do? And I'm afraid that some of them may have thought, oh, I hope she isn't here to expose me. Yes, they saw that woman. And so Jesus said, I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus now let Simon know that he knew the situation. He was basically saying, Simon, you didn't invite me here as a friend. If you thought of me as a friend, or even if you thought of me as an unimportant guest, you would have extended to me the most basic of courtesies. You would have had a servant pour cool water on my feet and dry them with a towel. But you were so arrogant, so full of yourself, so sure of your own spiritual superiority, so sure that you need no repentance that you didn't even offer the simple, simplest of customary greetings. But this woman who recognizes she is a sinner, who knows her need of forgiveness, who realizes that she needs a Savior, has shown her great love to me. Doing what she could to show that great love. She had no pitcher of water to wash my feet, so she gave me her tears of remorse. She had no towels, so she used her hair. And so, Jesus went on, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. Now, in that time period, it was a general rule of courtesy that after you had washed a guest's feet, you greet them with a kiss on the cheek. But this man didn't show even that common courtesy. But this woman in her humility, in her sorrow for her sins, in her gratefulness for the possibility of a savior had not stopped kissing his feet. She felt she was not worthy to kiss his cheek. So she knelt in worship. And so, Jesus continued, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured poured perfume on my feet. It was customary again in Jesus' day that when someone arrived at your house after washing the feet and drying the feet and kissing the cheek, you would take a cloth with olive oil on it and wipe their face. Because after walking through the hot, dusty climate, well, you've all worked out in the garden or in the field, you know, you get some dirt 
on your face and you sweat a little bit and, and you get, then you have mud on your face. And, and it was customary to just wipe it off. That was just a normal, accepted procedure for a guest coming into your home. Much as in the wintertime, we'd say to someone, well, come on in, let me take your coat. You know, just a common courtesy. But Simon didn't do that. He didn't show Jesus any respect because he didn't think Jesus deserved any respect. But this sinful woman showed her great respect and love by pouring very expensive oil on his feet. And so Jesus said, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. Did you notice that Jesus didn't list all of her sins? He just says her many sins are forgiven. Isn't it amazing how very gracious Jesus is? He could have listed all of her sins. He could have said, Oh, yes, I remember when you did this and this and this and this and this and this, and, and I forgive all of those. He could have humiliated her in front of this group of men. But he simply said, your many sins are forgiven you. I think that implies... No, I think it tells us straight out. When we come to Jesus, we don't have to list all of our sins. Aren't you glad? I couldn't even remember most of mine. Can you? We just have to say, I'm a sinner. Jesus, forgive my sins. So Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. She showed great repentance and exhibited amazing love, so Jesus forgave her sins. And that's what he does for anyone who comes to him. And so the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, they're not saying, wow, this is amazing. This man is such a great prophet that he can forgive sins. They're saying, who does he think he is? They weren't astonished by his ability to forgive sins. They were angered at his audacity to think he had the right to forgive sins because only God could forgive sins. So they've built more of a case against him. First, he, he didn't know this woman was a sinner. Then he encouraged her outrageous actions. Then he allowed her, a sinner, to touch him. And then he tries to tell us that there's something wrong with our spiritual life. We have him now. We've got enough evidence. He's proven tonight that we're right in trying to get rid of him. We just have to build enough evidence now to, to put it all together, and we've got him. So, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
And that shows how Jesus accepts the sinner as he or she is. He doesn't expect the sinner to be made clean and then come to him. He expects the sinner to come to him just as he is and to leave clean. I had a district superintendent years ago that had a lot of, I guess, little homey sayings, but he used to say, I think we in the church have got it mixed up. We think that the Holy Spirit's supposed to catch the fish and then we'll clean them. But it's very clear that we're the fishers of men, so we're supposed to catch them and let the Holy Spirit clean them. And I, I think he was onto something there. Well, I think Jesus showed to us the extreme of a welcoming spirit. And I hope that each of us has that same welcoming spirit with anyone and everyone we meet. If you'll turn to the, in the songbook once again, we're going to sing just two choruses in closing. Pam, maybe you want to come to the piano because I don't see Joanne. Is she out there? <laughs> 